How would you answer if someone asked you the question, what does a strong nation do? What does a strong nation do? I think you could give an answer to that. I think you would have a good idea about what strong, what a strong nation does. And, and I think the reason why we would have a good idea or a good response to that question is because our country has been a strong nation. And we could talk about the things that our country has historically done that would represent it as a strong nation. I think many of us are somewhat concerned that it's not so much anymore and that maybe we are not doing the things that made our country strong and great and that we're not following some of those same practices that that built this nation. And so the idea is strong nations do certain things. We we have seen that historically in our nation, and we'd like to see more of it in the modern era. Uh, we want our nation to be strong, and we know what strong nations do. What if someone asks you, what does a strong business do? Let's say maybe that you have some money and you're thinking about investing it in certain things. And, and so you want to know, what would, what would make a good investment? In other words, I want to, if I have any money to invest, I want to invest it into a strong business. What do strong businesses do? Well, that's an answerable question too. And I think people can pretty simply identify what makes a strong business. So if you know what would make a strong nation or if you know what would make a strong business, let's take that same concept and ask the question, what does a strong church do? What, what would make a church a strong church? And I want to suggest to you that that's an identifiable thing too. And it's not our opinion. It's not my likes and dislikes or yours relative to a church. But the Bible describes what a strong church does. And that should be very important to us. Because just like we would like to see our nation be strong, certainly if I'm investing money, I'd want the business I'm investing in to be strong. Even more important than those things is that this church be strong. And we want to read what the Bible has to say about what a strong church does. And we want to, of course, put those things into practice as we work together here at College View. Thank you for being present this morning. What a beautiful Lord's Day we have. Great privilege to be together. We have still so many of our, of our own members who are away traveling and others even more still who are planning to take trips away. Uh, be careful on your journeys. Come back to us quickly and safely because we miss you when you're gone. Uh, thanks to our visitors this morning. We're so grateful for your presence. We hope you'll come again whenever you have an opportunity to be here. Thanks for your presence during this time of worship this morning. Let's talk about what a strong church does. I'd like to suggest to you, first of all, that a strong church functions like a body. You know, we know a lot about our physical bodies, and we're not doctors. We have, we have a few trained medical people in our uh, congregation here, but for the vast majority of us, we are not doctors, we're not nurses, and we have not been specifically trained in medical things, but I think you would agree that people in general are much more knowledgeable about the, the workings of the physical body, uh, what it should do, and and what are some of the indicators if things are going wrong. In fact, it's, it's rather interesting that even those of us who have not been trained in medical things, we can talk fairly knowledgeable, fairly knowledgeably about the body, about how it's supposed to function, and so forth. That being the case, I would argue that 
the new, when the New Testament references the church as a body, that ought to be perhaps more meaningful to us even than it was to the people to whom those words were originally written. Because we today understand the working of the physical body in a, in a fuller sense than they would have 2,000 years ago. So this ought to be really, I think, a, a meaningful analogy for us. The church is to function as a body, and a strong church does that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, that, in that chapter, Paul goes into a rather lengthy discourse by inspiration about the body, the church as a body. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 27, Now ye are the body of Christ and members in particular. Uh, you know, we, we care for our body. Our bodies are important to us. Every part of our body is important to us. Uh, just within the last couple of weeks, Gordon just about cut his thumb off, and then Josh, because he wanted to be like Gordon, he almost cut his thumb off. And and uh, so, you know, a thumb is a fairly little part of the body. I mean, it's, it's certainly in comparison to a leg or an arm, a, a thumb is a fairly small part. But I'll tell you, uh, I, I'm, I'm sure that Gordon and Josh would attest to the fact I care for my thumb. My thumb is important to me, and when it hurts, I hurt all over sort of thing. That's the way our bodies function. And so uh, when one part is hurting, the whole body reacts to that part that is hurting. We understand that. It's a, a really effective picture of how we ought to relate together in the church. Specifically in verse 15 of this discourse, Paul says, If the foot shall say, Because I am not the hand, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? Here I think Paul is suggesting the idea that every member needs to appreciate his own function within the body. In other words, he says, well, here's the foot. And the foot says, well, I'm not a hand. You know, the foot, the foot doesn't do everything a hand does. A hand can do more things than a foot can do. You know, I, I, I can do a lot more with my hand than I can with my foot. And so the foot says, well, I guess I'm not important because I'm not a hand. I'm just a foot. I'm not important. No. Obviously, the foot is very important to the body. It's not the same function as the hand, but it's very important to the function of the body. And so, as we work together in a local congregation, we need to see ourselves that way. I have an important role. You have an important role. Every one of us has a function to perform, and your function is important. You need to appreciate the fact that you have a, a valuable part in the functioning of the body. Uh, you cannot say, and that's what Paul's saying here in verse 15, you cannot say, I'm not important. You, you should not think, well, uh, they won't miss me if I'm not there. No, that's not the case. You're an important functioning part of the body. Every one of us has an important role to perform. And you need to appreciate the importance of your function in the body. But then also in verse 21 of this, again, this is a long essay here uh, that Paul writes by inspiration in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians. In verse 21, he says, The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of thee, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of thee. And so here Paul was stressing, you need to appreciate the value of your own function. Here he is saying, you need to value, you need to, to value and appreciate the function of every other member. So I need to value what I can provide, but I also need to understand the importance of what everybody else does and appreciate them for that. I cannot think I'm more important than you are. Uh, I cannot think uh, that uh, I, I'm that guy. He's pretty insignificant to me. I'm not worried about him. He's a Christian here, but I, I'm just not really that worried about him. Uh, or, or 
I, I, I could care less whether that guy comes or goes. I can't have that attitude. Here Paul is saying, I need to value the function of every other... I, I need to value my own function, but I also need to value the function of every other person in the local congregation. When we do all of that, when we see ourselves as a functioning body, when I know that I have a role to play, but I also understand the importance of the role that you have to play, and we all value one another in that sort of relationship, then the church is functioning as a body and will be effective. The efficient working of anybody, of any individual body, is that it works together. Each part fulfills its role. In Ephesians chapter 4, beginning verse 16, the whole body, notice, the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body to the edifying of itself in love. Notice, every part does its share. You have a share in what we do here. And you need to accept that role and you need to be doing your best to fulfill it. And so the question is, does every member of this body of Christ at College View, do we all understand the importance that we have to our overall working and are we doing our best in the role that we fill? And so a strong church functions like a body with every part accepting and doing its work. We'll be an effective church. We'll be a strong church if we work together as a body. There are some other pictures. A strong church also loves like a family. I think this picture of the church is an easy one to imagine in our minds. And I wonder, do you think of this congregation as a family? I believe that we should. I believe the Scriptures teach us that we should view our relationship in that way. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, Paul says, How thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the church. Instead of house of God there, we would probably say the family of God. We need to understand this is the family of God. We are family. We are related together in that way. Later in the same epistle, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 1, notice how he, again, suggests the idea of family. Rebuke not an elder, but entreat him as a father, and the younger men as brethren, and the elder women as mothers, and the younger sisters with all purity. Again, the idea of family. In our culture, unfortunately, the family is diminishing. And you've probably seen the statistics that indicate how many families are not the traditional nuclear family. You know, so many families, there, there's not a, a husband and wife and a mother and father in the home. And children are being raised by single moms or single dads or maybe not with any of their parents at all. And the family unit is disintegrating in our culture, which is, does not bode well for the future, by the way, I think, as we all understand and agree. But for us... I think for all of us, we, we certainly still have a very good sense of family. And in regards to our families, we, we have a real commitment to them. Uh, we, we show concern for our families. We care for our families. We love our families. And that's the way it's supposed to be, of course. And with that idea in mind, then the Scriptures tell us that we ought to act together this way in our spiritual family, the church. The church at Thessalonica is held out as a great example of that attitude. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning verse 9, 
But as touching brotherly love, you need not that I write unto you, for ye yourselves are taught of God to love one another. And indeed ye do it toward all the brethren which are in all Macedonia. But we beseech you, brethren, that you increase more and more. So Paul commended them for their family love, their brotherly love that they demonstrated. But he says, I'm still urging you to grow in that even more. Don't be content where you are. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3, he says, We're bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is meet, because that your faith groweth exceedingly, and the charity of every one of you all toward each other aboundeth. And so Paul certainly uh, commended the church at Thessalonica for their family love, their brotherly love toward one another. Uh, I wonder if the same things would be said of us. If an apostle were to write an epistle to the church here, would he, would he commend us for the measure of brotherly love that we have demonstrated? I hope that he would. We need to value our spiritual family. And we need to build that relationship more and more. Even as Paul told Thessalonica, you're good, but keep, keep striving to increase in this. We need to do the same thing. I think that we build that family relationship certainly by knowing one another better, by spending time together as family, by making it a priority. You know, these kind of, these kind of relationships don't happen by chance. The relationship that you have with your physical family uh, takes attention. You pay attention to it. And when a family m- member needs you, you're there to help them. Uh, but you also just enjoy spending time with them and you nurture that relationship with your physical family. And those same dispositions need to exist toward our spiritual family. A strong church loves like a family does. I would suggest to you that a strong church also serves as a temple. We know about the temple in the Old Testament. We've studied it extensively and we know some of the rules and regulations that pertained to it. Uh, in fact, I, I, I suspect it could be argued that the temple that Solomon m- built in Jerusalem was perhaps the most elaborate and expensive building, maybe, that's ever been constructed in the history of the world. I, I don't know. I don't know how you'd get a handle on that sort of thing. But it certainly was a very elaborate building. And the building itself and all the elaborate features uh, and, and all the detailing of the temple were, were meant to honor and praise God. And then, of course, what was done in that temple, uh, the acts of worship that were conducted within that temple also were meant for the praise of God. Well, we don't have a physical temple today. We, we know how that temple functioned in the Old Testament. We don't have a physical temple today. But as we were studying in our class this morning from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, I think there Paul is saying that the church is the temple of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy, for the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. Now we pointed out in class, a couple chapters later in chapter 6, he's going to talk about the individual Christian as the temple of the Holy Spirit. But here I believe he's talking about the church as the temple of God. And notice he says... Uh, don't defile the temple of God. Uh, uh, the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. You know, in the Old Testament times, uh, people would have been very concerned about anything they did that might defile the temple. Uh, there were strict rules, and they were, they were enforced. Now, 
Oftentimes when the Israelites became unfaithful to God, they themselves would defile that temple. But when it was being treated properly, they wouldn't do anything to defile the temple. They held it in very high regard. Well, in even a greater sense, uh, we should not do anything to defile or disgrace the church today, which is the temple of God. We need to be very careful in our conduct because this church is the temple of God in this place and we need to honor it as such. Peter built upon that same analogy in 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 5. Ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Notice he speaks of us as a priesthood. Well, when you think of a temple, you think of priests and sacrifices, right? That's what they did in the Old Testament temple. There were priests and there were sacrifices. What do we do in this temple, which is the church? Well, we're a holy priesthood and we offer up spiritual sacrifices. You see the parallel there? Later in that same chapter at verse 9, he says, Ye are a chosen generation, notice, a royal priesthood, and holy nation of peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so... We are priests, and this is the temple of God. Now, again, in the Old Testament, there were high requirements. There were very valuable services performed by the priest in the temple. I want to argue that in an even greater sense, uh, there, there are important requirements for us to meet as priests. There is valuable work for us to be doing in this temple, this spiritual temple of God that exists in His church today. In Romans chapter 12, Paul identifies the sacrifices that we offer. Romans chapter 12, beginning verse 1, where Stephen read for us earlier, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Notice, your bodies are a living sacrifice in this spiritual temple. And again, in Hebrews chapter 13, beginning verse 15, By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name, but to do good and to communicate, forget not, notice, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. Our sacrifices today are not the literal burnt offerings of the Old Testament era, but we still, as priests, offer sacrifices to God by virtue of our worship, by virtue of the good deeds that we do. And so, again, a strong church, and we want this to be a strong church, functions like a body, loves like a family, serves as a temple for God today. Let me suggest to you that a strong church also submits like a kingdom. I'm sure that you're familiar with this symbolism. We are the kingdom of God. Notice in... Colossians chapter 1, verse 12, giving thanks to God, which hath, this is Colossians 1, 12 and 13, giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us to be, made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath translated us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son. And so, even though many in the denominational world deny it, the kingdom is in existence now. We're not waiting for a future kingdom of Jesus here upon earth as the premillennialists teach. The kingdom now is in existence. Well, if we are in his kingdom and he is the king, then what does that suggest? Well, that suggests we submit in obedience to the king. In a kingdom, you submit to the king. 
And if Jesus is our king, then we in his kingdom should submit. And that, of course, is what Paul taught later in that same epistle. Colossians 3, verse 17, Whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. And, of course, as we've pointed out so many times, that is an expression of following his authority, to do everything in his name. What's, what's the church like? What's the church here like? Are we submissive to our king? We ought to be. Unfortunately, in many, in many times, churches don't act like a king in submission to the kingdom. Certainly, in the denominational world, we don't see that. Someone has pointed out, I think it's a pretty good parallel. Too often, churches act like England. Think about England. England still has a king or a monarch. During most of our lifetimes, it's been a queen. But they, ha- they still have a monarch, right? But in England... The king or queen, the monarch, is just a figurehead with really no authority at all. All the authority now is is vested in the parliament in England. And those men are voted into office, and they pass the rules and regulations. And here's the the queen over here, and she's just a figurehead. She She doesn't really hold any authority at all. And they don't do what she says. They make their own decisions in the parliament as to what they want to do. And someone pointed out, you know, unfortunately... Too often in churches today, it's like that. We have a figurehead, Christ, but we're not worried about what he... We're electing our own officials to make rules and regulations that we want and we desire. Well, that's not the picture that we have in the Scriptures, and that, of course, is not right. If, If we're just doing what we want, we're not following the king, then if majority rule is established, then it's not a kingdom anymore. A kingdom has a king, and the citizens of the kingdom submit to the king. And that's the way it's supposed to be. So what we're really talking about here is the whole business of authority. A strong church follows the authority of Christ. And if we're going to be a strong church, then we must very much be devoted to what's taught in God's Word, doing Bible things in Bible ways, speaking where the Bible speaks, be silent where the Bible is silent, give book, chapter, and verse authority, and thus saith the Lord for everything we do in practice. That's a strong church. Now, Men might not see it that way, but the Scriptures identify a strong church as a church like that that's committed to Bible authority. So that's one of the aspects of the strength that we need. We need to function like a body. We need to love like a family. We need to serve as a temple. But we need to submit to the King as well, following the authority of Christ, if we're going to be a strong church. Finally, let me suggest to you that a strong church is pure like a bride. You know, this this analogy... Unfortunately, I think probably is lost on a lot of people today because unfortunately, uh, many brides are not pure in our day and time. That, that, that concept sadly has been lost. And we just take a, a minute to admonish our young people. Stay pure. Stay morally pure. Honor that concept, the purity of a bride. Uh, our culture uh, it has moved far away from that concept and there's no shame and the immorality that so many people engage in outside of marriage. Uh, and we would just beg our young people to be devoted to the sense of moral purity. A chaste, pure as a bride is a picture that a lot of people couldn't even begin to relate to in our day and time, unfortunately, but we should still, obviously. Notice what Paul says in Second Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2. He says, I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Now, that's the picture, the importance of moral purity, separate, dedicated to one. 
It's not the idea of, of, of someone who's occasionally shows faithfulness, but always shows faithfulness. I wonder how many husbands would be satisfied if their bride-to-be was sometimes faithful, sometimes morally pure, but not always. Would you be satisfied with that, you husbands? And I think the answer, of course, is absolutely not. We need to understand that, that the Lord expects His bride to be chaste and pure. Jesus views it that way. Paul talked about that in Ephesians chapter 5, beginning verse 25. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. We need to be maintaining moral purity in the church. A strong church is a morally pure church. Not We're not trying to conform to the ever-changing uh, norms of society around us, uh, that's just going to be bad leading to worse, but we want to maintain our purity as a bride. A strong church does that. Well, there are a lot of pictures of the church then, I hope you agree, uh, that really teach us some things about what it would take to make a strong church. We want a strong nation. We would desire a strong business if we were going to invest in it. But more important than anything like that, we should want a strong church. We should all want this congregation of God's people to be a strong church. Now, that's not an ambiguous thing then. That's not just something, well, I, I sure hope it happens. I don't know. I mean, how? No, it's, it's not left uncertain. The identifying characteristics of a strong church are very well spelled out for us in the Word of God. And therefore, we all can be working together to make this church stronger and stronger. We can be a strong church by adhering to the principles set forth in the Word of God. And I hope that we all commit ourselves to doing that. Thanks, to, thanks for your good attention for the, the things we've said in this lesson this morning. I hope that we will all take it seriously to heart. We're going to conclude the lesson by singing a song of invitation. We've not taught the plan of salvation here or really motivated someone necessarily to become a Christian by the things we've discussed this morning. But it may be that someone is here desiring to obey the gospel plan of salvation. We certainly want to make ourselves available to you to assist you in that. We would rejoice to help you in obeying God. Upon hearing the truth, believe it, repent of your sins, confess your faith in Jesus, be baptized for the remission of sins. That's the plan of salvation. We hope you, if you've not done so already, we'll hope you make that decision without delay. We'd be glad to study more with you. For those who are Christians already, if you've fallen away, we beg you come back in repentance, confession, and prayer. If we can help, let us know while we stand and sing this song.